Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter, and today we are joined by Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus. PFF has become the premier objective data in measuring performance relative to expectation instead of normal traits, traditional data, or measurable factors. The system looks at every play, creating a large sample size that eliminates biases and identifies undervalued players while avoiding player hype. The grading process evaluates players objectively, regardless of perceived ability. And today, we get into how one would measure in-game or play decisions, how far pro football focus has come in the last 15 years, and what trends might be revealed during the 2023 season. You can follow Sam on Twitter, at PFF underscore Sam, and we recommend you do. To help us continue our growth, we ask that you subscribe, rate, and review our show. Enjoy Sam's interview. Hey, Sam, thanks so much for joining us today on the S2 Cognition Podcast. We appreciate you jumping on. Can you can you paint a picture for the listeners of when you first started at Pro Football Focus in 2008-ish, what did it look like then, and what does it look like now? What are the biggest differences? I just want you to paint the picture from when you joined to, to current. Yeah, I mean, now, you know, PFF is the kind of preeminent analytics company out there throughout the NFL. Um, we've got all 32 NFL teams as customers. We've got every team except one, one holdout in the FBS. So 100 and whatever that is now. <laughs> one holdout. Teams, <laughs> a, a whole bunch of FCS teams. I forget what number we're at there, 20, 30, something like that. Um, when you go all the way back to the start, I mean, it's not a company. <laughs> when we're talking about it was... Neil Hornsby, who had this idea of, you know, got fed up listening to, you know, the talking heads, the, the announcers just make these wild proclamations and declarations about this guy is one of the best of the league and wanted to kind of quantify that, right? Wanted to go out there and start charting this stuff. Um, and when he set it up, he kind of created the rough idea, created a little bit of a database to start tracking it. And then he needed people to come on and help actually go through games and start charting stuff. Um, so he turned to, in the UK, you know, it's, it's growing, but it's still a fairly niche sport. It's not a, there's not a huge fan base. There aren't people, you know, in your, in your everyday life that you would know generally that are huge football fans. So the only place he knew people that would be able to do that was, um, like an online message board. So the official NFL UK message board is essentially where all of the original core team of PFF came from. So there's me. Um, ben Stockwell, who's still running data, Khaled El Sayed, who does on that side as well, Gordon McGinnis, who's now running content for PFF. Um, all those kind of first guys were, were all from that message board. And that sort of transition or that, that process started around kind of 2008, 2009. I was going to ask uh, how many employees were there in 08 versus how many employees are there now? Yeah, I mean, employees, I think, is immediately just the wrong term. Like, we were doing this on a, a kind of part-time basis, getting paid kind of by the game, essentially out of Neil's pocket. I mean, he literally bankrolled this thing by himself uh, as a hobby at that point. So employees, I think, was a glorified term at that point, if it's applicable at all. We started hiring people kind of as a full-time thing, I think, in 2010 um, was when that when it really started to become a business. And kind of go on the pathway to what it's become now. Now, were you in the UK at that time or were you stateside? I was in Ireland. Um, so not technically the UK, but close enough for, for your purposes. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, all of us were remote and, and all of us were in, in the UK and Ireland. Um, the, the next wave of people was when we started to pick up guys from the US. So we're, we're going along, we're doing, we're collecting this data and we're putting some content out. We're kind of getting a, a little bit more notoriety. We're getting a little bit more attention, but we needed to make money out of it at some point. Otherwise, you know, there's only so long one guy can bankroll this, right? So we ended up putting what was our original product, um, premium stats, we put it behind a paywall and it had been free on the website and then we locked it behind a paywall. And that's where Steve Palazzolo, who's who, uh, co-hosts mm -hmm. the podcast with me, it's where Rick Drummond, who now runs the football um, sort of subdivision of PFF, all these next wave of guys came out of the woodwork and said, hey, I, I'm not paying for this, but, you know, do you guys need help? And maybe I can come in and get access and, you know, help do games or whatever. <laughs> so that's where all those guys came from was when we locked this thing behind a paywall and all of the American people that first came to the company reached out and were like, you know, is there any way I could get the data without having to pay you for it? Really fun to go back in time, right, to, to when that first started, because Brandon, that has to sound insanely similar to how S2 got its first start uh, back, I mean, what is it, 2014, 2015, when you and Scott are piecing this together, can you kind of go uh, draw back the curtain a little bit to S2 start and how it's pretty similar to Pro Football Focus? Yeah, and Sam and I have had some discussions about how eerily similar that was, uh, just the rough start and, you know, just really bootstrapping and, and going to colleges and working with college teams. And, um, you know, it, it was it was essentially a player development tool for a very long time at the college level, just trying to figure out how, how guys were wired so coaches and, and staffs could maximize these kids' potential and, and develop players. And it was probably three or four years in where – some of the team, some of the college teams who we, we had started using it to promote their guys to the NFL scouts that would, that would come in. Uh, and that's where we sort of got drug into like, Oh, this is a scouting tool. You know, we're going to use this to start to evaluate players, um, that we might bring in. And so that's, uh, yeah, then, then of course it was that way for six or seven years prior to what happened this last, this last draft season. Uh, I think the Brock Purdy thing kind of, kind of started it off and then and then when scores got leaked and that's when it kind of got into the to the to the mainstream media but um yeah i mean scott and i were were part-time faculty members at vanderbilt and uh we were bootstrapping we had his little brother who was a kindergarten teacher pe teacher and he would go test guys and it got to the point where scott was doing baseball and i was doing football and and uh and i would cover his clinic when he would go down to spring training and then he would cover my clinic during football. And then finally in, in 2016, we had a stroke of luck um, where a, a collaborator, a neurosurgeon collaborator of ours at Vanderbilt took a chairman position at University of Louisville and said, hey, why don't you guys do do what you really love full time and, and, and stay in academics part time? And, and so that's how it kind of. That's kind of how it grew, but yeah, I, 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 it's just amazing at what PFF has have, has become. Obviously, we were football fans prior to the to the S two, and just looking at the analytics, I mean, that's the lens we look at things through. And of course, you know, Sam and I have had some discussions about, you know, we do we do need objective measures, right? And to for us to say, hey, we're finding relationships on the field, the first blush at that, you're like, okay, well. What does success look like in the NFL? Who who who's successful? What are you relating this to? 
And so now to have objective measures to say, okay, hey, you know, whether you want to agree a thousand percent or not, these are generally the top 15 or 20 guys at every position. Uh, and there's data around that. It's not just, you know, fantasy football guys in their basement saying, oh, I think, you know, so-and-so is the best receiver. Um, and so anytime we can wrap data around it and wrap true and hard numbers on it, it's, it's hard to argue with that, right? And that's, I think, uh, PFF lives by a similar motto to us. The data are what the data are. Like, it, it, you know, it is what it is. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's been great getting Sam's advice. Yeah, and I think it's a similar kind of thing where it's, you know, before, before analytics, before S2, before any of this stuff, you know, that we just wanted to kind of improve the conversation, right? It's like what we're, the stuff that's sort of being talked about is so surface level and so that's right. intangible and just there's nothing to this. There's no substance here. So let's create data. Let's create information so we can at least have a better conversation. Um, but it doesn't give you all of the answers, right? And this is where we're still running into this, right? Where you watch a game and you can tell that whether it's, I don't necessarily want to name names, but your guys in the booth that clearly just don't buy into this stuff yet or don't haven't looked into it much. And they're like, well, the analytics would always tell you go for it. And it's like, okay, number one, it doesn't, right? Number two is like the, the analytics are never going to give you like a hard and fast rule every single time in every single situation for every possible eventuality. All it's going to do is give you better information to make the call yourself, right? And if you decide to go against the giant weight of numbers, right. you need to have a good reason because everybody knows that this is what the information is telling you to do. Um, so it's not that it's giving you the playbook and it's giving you the answer and like you can go and like a GM tomorrow can pull up the information and construct his 53-man roster, right? Cut day is going to happen according to the data. It's never going to work that way, right. but it just gives you more information. And this is the funny thing is that it almost gets misrepresented in this sort of culture war of, well, we're against, you know, modernization <laughs> and numbers and data. Right. Right. That's like all analytics is, is, you know, discerning information from data right it's exactly the same as vince lombardi or um or paul brown were doing like in the 60s with a reel-to-reel -reel and you know opposing tape like they were just doing it manually with like a scissors and a giant dark room etc creating cut-ups but it's exactly the same concept right it's what really drew me to this really brandon was in the beginning when sam goes when talking heads were kind of throwing out these terms, we, we didn't objectively measure them. And even though you hear them say, hey, he's always in the right spot at the right time, or man, he's an instinctive football player. Yes, but compared to who? And compared to who in this draft class compared to former players? And what does instinctive look like? Is it, an, is it anticipation? Is it being able to see space and, and react to it? Like what what objectively do when we say he's got a nose for the football, he's in the right spot at the right time. I mean, he's a gap filler. He sets the edge well. Well, like, what do all those things mean? And I think that's where, Brandon, you guys got that start by, by saying we can answer some of these questions objectively because of how the brain is wired. Yeah. And, and Sam hit the nail on the head. It's, it, and, and I think that we got a bad, you know, we got beaten up a little bit in this last draft cycle with, like, we're going to tell you who's going right. to be the next Tom Brady, or we're going to tell you who's going to be the next Ryan Leaf. It, it, it's not that that is not even remotely close to what what our goal is. And what Sam alluded to is all we're doing, all we're trying to do is provide some objective data to reduce uncertainty. 
I mean, that's our, that's our job is to help front offices reduce uncertainty. And, you know, we talk about this all the time. You, you, let's say you're a college recruiter and you get a guy who you've been best friends with for a long time and say, Hey man, there's this kid tearing it up in Boise, Idaho. Okay. Well, that's a starting point. What did, what did we first do? Well, we watch tape. Okay. Well, that's reduced some uncertainty. Next step is, well, let's talk to the kid, see if he's a good kid, personality. Okay. That reduces uncertainty. Well, let's look at his arm talent. Let's make him throw. And so what we're doing is just trying to really quantify and measure some of their decision skills. Right. And does it, is it a one-to-one analog? No, there's nothing out there that's going to predict human behavior. Um, but are they more apt to make certain mental errors? Are they more apt to struggle with some decision points, uh, some level of complexity? Yeah, we can help you sort of quantify and look at that. And it's just another sort of piece. And like, like Sam said, it's, it, it is very eerie. This, the, the way that he talks about PFF data, the way, the way we do, like, you know, you, you want to take a quarterback with impulse control at, at the first percentile, go against the data. The data suggests he's going to make a lot of premature reads, a lot of, you know, may throw some picks because he didn't fully let things develop. I mean, if you can tolerate that, that, that that's great. But there are there's evidence out there, right? Sam, so curious to see if you guys have ever discussed or, or if you do sort of quantify decision making or, hey, this guy, you know, especially in the quarterback space, you know, obviously you can't look at outcomes like this guy threw more interceptions as this guy it must mean he's a poor decision maker. But just looking at coding data about sort of mental mistakes or decision making processing. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we've ever done a, a sort of true deep dive into, you know, different varieties. I mean, our big thing is we quantify what we call turnover worthy plays. So one of the things we've pushed for a long time is like, don't look at turnovers. I mean, turnovers are important. They're maybe the single most important data point in terms of winning and losing. But look at the frequency with which a guy is making yeah. those plays because that's more predictive, right? Turnovers can be lucky, uh, often are lucky. And sometimes a guy is going to have wildly more turnover-worthy plays than actually results in turnovers. And actually, sometimes it goes the other way. Remember um, the year Matt Ryan? Remember the the, the butt pick where the, the ball landed on Marshawn Lattimore's <laughs> ass and he somehow picked it off like before it hit the ground? Yes. That right. year, Matt Ryan actually had more turnovers than turnover worthy plays like almost never happens because you know defenders drop footballs um but it can so you can go all the way from you actually end up getting unlucky and having more turnovers than you even committed bad plays all the way to the other end of the the spectrum where you can have like two three four times the number of turnover worthy plays but you just get insanely lucky over the course of the year and you're never punished for them so our point has always been, you know, look at the, the frequency of those plays because that is a, a much bigger predictor. And we've done part of uh, our sort of studies, Steve, with, uh, with PFFIQ that we sell to customers or team customers is sort of identifying what is predictive and what is just noise year to year. You know, and the things that you can sort of really focus on to dial in on you know, is this who a guy is going to be going forward or is this just the kind of thing that fluctuates year to year? And what one of the things we found is that that tendency to make mistakes, the sort of percentage of negative plays 
is actually more predictive than how often you're going to make good plays, right? It's when everything is how, like how often you goof is the kind of thing <laughs> that, that does seem to be intrinsic to a player and not right. some, uh, and will come back again. There's some really helpful sort of metrics and thoughts. Can you talk a little bit about you guys' process at, at, at PFF? How, I mean, do you guys sit around a table and, and, and just discuss, hey, what – what's some valuable pieces of information we can provide? Because I feel like you guys have generated a lot of thought around novel metrics, not just your classic, you know, quarterback rating or, Sacks, or right? these kinds of things. There's gotta be a, yeah, there's gotta be a lot of deep thought, a lot of conceptual thought that goes into that. What, what are you, what are you guys process for that? A lot of it was kind of early in, in the company's kind of history. Like we, our, the main sort of thrust was let's just record everything we can think of right on a given play, like every single data point you can think of where this happened, how it happened, you know, everything across the board. And we were doing that for a number of years. And, you know, once you get to the end of the games, you had this kind of off season with all this data and you're like, well, let's, okay, let's start trying to figure out interesting things yeah. from this data. Uh, and then, you know, early in PFS history, it was all just people that knew football. It wasn't math guys. It wasn't data scientists. It wasn't, you know, people that understood this stuff. Interesting. And that was another kind of stage in our evolution was guys like Eric Eager and, and George Shahuri coming in who were math people, you know, first and foremost and understood, the numbers as well as uh, football, and they were able to start creating, you know, mathematically sound things. We created some statistics just ourselves, but it was, you know, people that just kind of cobbled together things, seeing if this made sense, guesstimating, you know, was there any kind of statistical soundness to this, all that kind of thing, and and sort of intuitively understanding, well, this makes more sense than focusing on this one number that we know is iffy, you know. So, a lot of our pass rushing stuff focuses on you know, pressure rate, pass rush, win rate, you know, all those kinds of things rather than sacks, which like interceptions come and go, can be really good qualitative plays or can be just lucky plays depending on the sack. They're not all created equal. Um, right. But then the math guys, you know, take it to a different level and start creating things like PFF war and, you know, much more um, analytically sound things. Well, because I think about, we talk about this all the time, Brandon, when we're talking to teams, you know, just let's say a, a quarterback reduces his interception rate by what, two or three interceptions, you know, year over year. Are you willing to say it was because some of the drills we put out? And it's like, why well, I immediately go to um, Tom Brady in the Super Bowl against the Falcons. And he throws that, that pick to Robert Alford, who returns it for a touchdown. He throws that football because Robert's in the wrong spot. And so scheme goes into this. And he's like, well, he's, his expectancy is, I don't, there's not going to be anyone there. So I'm going to throw this football here. And then there is someone there because they're out. Of, he knows the system and scheme so well that he throws a ball where someone's not supposed to be. How does that get turned into some of your turnover-worthy plays? Versus how much does scheme matter? It matters a lot, and it yeah, it matters a lot, and it's it's always a very difficult thing to sort of strip out of all of the information and the grading, right? Like how a lot of our issue or a lot of our problems. Yeah, you know, one of the criticisms you'll get at PFF is well, you're not in the in the the huddle you're not in the meeting room you don't know what the play call was right and, and that's true and it's a blind spot in the grading but it's it it's our point has always been you're better off quantifying it knowing that there's a margin for error that it's not a perfect data set right there are going to be bad plays in there where if you're not in that meeting room you can't get it right like right. in order to know what happened in this play 
you have to know about a specific call they put in during the week that means this guy did the right thing and this guy that looked like he was wrong is actually doing 100% what the coach told him to do. Um, but if you're doing, you know, a thousand snaps for that team over the course of the season and you screw up four of them because of these types of plays, you're better off with that margin of error than just saying, well, let's not do any of it because it's not 100% right and let's just go by gut instinct, right? Let's just eyeball it. That'll probably get us close enough. So our point has always been, you're way better off just accepting, yes, it's not perfect. There's a margin for error in here. Having said that, even with the margin for error, we're still a hell of a lot closer than just guesswork, right? Which is what it was before we showed up. And still in that moment, Sam, sorry to cut you off, but I think about even the guys like Chris who's sitting there in the booth and he has less than a couple seconds to dissect what he just saw, what scheme they were in defensively, what scheme offensively, what they were trying to do and what unfolded. And he has to break it down in the middle of what, just yeah. a couple seconds. So even he's able to kind of determine what scheme is, ha guys that have done it long enough know what's, what, what they're trying to do versus what's happening against it. Yeah, that's the other element is as much as that is a margin for error and a, a blind spot in the grading, it isn't as big as people think it is. You know, it's it's not that complicated when you've watched enough football. You know, inside zone, generally speaking, is inside zone. Everybody runs it. Same, you know, there, there are concepts and um, plays and all those kinds of things that are consistent with all 32 teams in the NFL. And there are wrinkles here and there. But usually when one guy is wrong, the one guy jumps out from the tape because 10 guys are doing one thing and one guy is doing something else. You know, well, okay, maybe he's the one guy that's on the right page or, you know, <laughs> Occam's razor here. He's probably the guy that screwed up. That's, that's awesome. So obviously you're really knowledgeable, Sam. Tell us how a youngster in Ireland <laughs> came to be one of the biggest <laughs> NFL gurus out there. Well, it goes back to that, um, you know, the origin of PFF and basically blind luck, right? <laughs> like Neil needed people to go on, do games. I was one of those guys from the message board that was loud, obnoxious and opinionated at that point. Um, and we were just the first group of guys in doing stuff. And then thankfully, you know, as we went through, as we got more and more um, NFL expertise and NFL relationships, we've all learned and developed and you know gotten more knowledge and just sort of continued to to grow from that point of view if we stayed at the level we were when we started doing this pff wouldn't be what it is today right we've we've needed that input and that feedback and, and all those kinds of things from the nfl to be able to make the product better how were operations noticeably different from 08 chris collinsworth purchases a majority stake like how were operations of, of what you did noticeably different in those six years before and then after that could you see something changing on the horizon yeah i mean obviously the team has gotten bigger you know when we were first grading games it was a, a very small tight-knit team that was doing all the grading and with more and more uh, leagues and going to college that exponentially expands the number of games you've got to do and then you know everything else we've got to, the deadlines moving ever and ever closer um so nfl teams can get the data at a timely manner like all that necessitates increasing the the pool of analysts doing this right and that that brings its own challenges because the grading is by its very nature there's a subjective element to it um it's subjective you know within a defined framework i mean we have a we have a grading manual that i haven't looked at the most recent one but it's like 300 pages long right it's there's a fairly rigid framework of like here's how it works and then within these really uh tight 
parameters, you have interpretation or license for interpretation. There are differences there. Um, but we've always had kind of, um, you know, double blind checks, third party cross checking of grades to try and keep that as tight as possible. But the bigger group, the bigger that group gets, the more difficult it is to try and keep it all on the same page. So that was one of the, the challenges as we, we grew. The process has evolved a little bit the way we've done it. Um, it's been broken up from before, you know, one guy would just go through and, and do everything and another guy would do it as well. Now it's been sort of separated by process. So pass rushing, pass protection is one defined area. One guy does that. Run blocking, um, you know, run defense is another, that kind of thing, coverage, receiving. So it's been sort of split up by facet um, over the years, which has helped efficiency and streamline things. Uh, but really it's just been about expansion, keeping everybody on the same page and continually kind of adding in knowledge and feedback into the process. Sam, what were what were some of your biggest surprises from last year's NFL season? I, you know, I mean, you're really in touch with this kind of stuff. I think we also, you know, we sort of predict things that are going to happen. What were some of the big surprises that stood out for you last year? Yeah, I mean, the the kind of related, I think, performance of Geno Smith in Seattle and then Russell Wilson in um, Denver. We in our show, the, the PFF NFL podcast, we last year, it was the first time we've done it, actually, we decided to have a show where we had like fan bets, right? You know, because during the off season, once you're clear of the draft, you have two, three months where nothing changes really, right? So you're kind of saying the same thing over and over and over again. And we were like, look, you guys are probably tired of listening to this. We're tired of saying it. If you think we're full of it on this particular topic, send us in, right? Tell us, we'll, we'll put a bet on it. If you guys win, you get a free year of PFF plus. Um, and we deliberately only sort of picked the ones that we were like 100% sure we were going to win on, right? Because it's like, you know, that's the whole point, right? The, the whole idea is if you guys think we're absolutely talking crap, let's bet on it, right? We're pretty confident we're right. Let's see. And we had a guy bet that Geno Smith would rank in the top 10 in PFF grades in the year. We're like, take it, 100%, never going to happen. And after like four <laughs> weeks, he was like the number three graded quarterback in the league. And I mean, he's cooled off a bit over the second half of the year, but was still in there and, and played fantastically. We had a Russell Wilson as one as well. Somebody, somebody bet that Daniel Jones would have a higher PFF grade than Russell Wilson. And we were looking at that like only through the lens of, man, that's a big jump for Daniel Jones. He'd have to get a lot, you know, I don't know. We'd never even occurred to us that Russell Wilson might just start playing like absolute garbage and actually end up with a worse grade. <laughs> That's that is good. That's hilarious. Well, you're a Vikings fan. Was was uh, was Kirk Cousins a uh, was that a surprise for you? No, not not Kirk himself. More just the 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 run that they went on. You know, that that crazy yeah. sequence of like eleven straight one score games bouncing their way and thirteen wins. That surprised me. The Kirk Cousins, I think, was. He's an interesting quarterback. Um, you Did you watch that Netflix thing, the quarterback documentary? Yeah. Every time you see oh, yeah. Kirk Cousins, you know, in something like that, or I saw another show he did years ago where he was sort of talking to draft prospects. Like every time you get a glimpse into his process a little bit, you appreciate just how much work he does and how good he is. And then you kind of circle back around to an NFL season or an NFL weekend and you're like, 
he does all of that just to be like a noticeable step behind Patrick Mahomes. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, there's a sort of unfair feeling about it, but I, I think he comes out of those things well because you're reminded like a, just how good he is and B just how hard he works at it to be that guy. Um, and then you're also sort of reminded just by proxy of how much of an absolute freak a guy like Mahomes <laughs> is because it doesn't matter. Like he puts in all that work and that guy's still <laughs> like light years ahead. But we had talked to Alec Lewis, who is the Minnesota Vikings beat reporter for The Athletic, and he said the same thing. It's when we talked about him, it's just like what comes away from this is he squeezes every ounce of his opportunity more so than maybe any other quarterback in today's game. It's like almost every waking moment dedicated to football, he's squeezing out something to make himself better. Really does. Like, I mean, there was a part in that documentary where he's like, he basically articulated. I mean, it's one thing to do it. It's another thing to say it out loud to people in front of a microphone. But he was like, he, he lets his wife dress him because that's mental <laughs> runtime that could be going to a play. You know, I, I, I don't, don't want to even think about it. Just want to go into the closet, put on today's clothes and go. If I'm thinking about that, that's a play that I didn't get to last week that could be important the next week. Like, it's true. I, he probably does squeeze more out of his talent than any other quarterback in the NFL. And it's like, that would, that in itself is interesting, but then the extra part of like to be right. QB eight, you know, whatever <laughs> it is, however you want to put him in the rankings right. is, is kind of crazy. So uh, before we get to Harrison's lightning round, you got to tell us what, what are some surprises we should be looking for in 2023? <laughs> well, actually our, our bet show is coming next week so that the fans will be telling us where it's going to be. Um, I look, I, I don't know. I, it's, by the nature of surprises, right? You're, you don't see them coming. But um, there's a lot of, because the AFC is so crazy, like with all these really good teams, it, it wouldn't shock me if almost anybody emerged as a true Super Bowl contender from that conference. Um, like Pittsburgh right now, look incredible in with their first team in preseason. It's just been unstoppable. Kenny Pickett looks amazing. And for a guy like Kenny Pickett, given how maligned that quarterback draft class was. Like if Pickett ends up being a superstar, that would be a, a hell of a story. Um, and then the NFC, the one shock I could see coming from that is everybody's kind of penciling back in Pittsburgh or Philadelphia and San Francisco to the championship game again. It wouldn't shock me if Dallas ends up with the number one seed and actually ends up being better than Philadelphia. They weren't that far away a year ago. And I really like you know, the two veteran additions they've made in particular, Stephon Gilmore at corner and Brandon Cooks on offense, like Dallas could be really good. Right. Well, I was going to, before we get to that lightning round to kind of dovetail off that, what trends, you know, now you got my mind racing about all this stuff that you're seeing. What trends from 2022 team or player centric do you see carrying over to 2023 that may not have stood out in 2022, but now looking ahead to 2023, you're looking at these trends. Are there any that you're seeing? I mean, the, the only couple of sort of big picture trends, I think, um, at the moment are number one, you know, this Vic Fangio style of defense, the sort of cover two, four, six split safeties, take away the deep shot, all that kind of thing. That's only getting more prevalent in the NFL. And it's one fascinating thing, I think, is that the offense that is most prevalent, that Shanahan coaching tree and the various branches of it, whether it's Sean McVay, Shanahan himself, those guys are gravitating towards that defense because it's the one that's given them the most problems. So I can't think of a time where that's happened before where 
the coaches from a specific offense that's the current um you know meta system in the nfl have actually gone out of their way to like promote the defense that's causing them the most problems like usually they want to stay the hell away from that because they don't like it it's the one that causes them issues whereas these guys are actually going no that's the defense that's stopping us. That's the defense that's causing us problems. Hire a guy from that system immediately yeah. so that we spend the next nine months practicing against it and we know how to, how to beat it in a given game. So we're in this kind of really interesting schematic arms race where they're actually both kind of promoting each other and, and helping development. And then the only other big picture trend, I think, is like the number of amazing quarterbacks in, in the NFL right now is... I, I don't know if it's ever been higher. I mean, it's crazy, the strength and depth. And, you know, you're seeing teams like the Jets go, Derek Carr does us no good whatsoever, right? Derek Carr's maybe a top 10 quarterback. Uh, the problem is, like, four or five, six of the guys ahead of him are all going to be in the playoffs. <laughs> it's, <laughs> right. it's, it's a, it does us no good whatsoever. Like, we could make the playoffs with Derek Carr, and then we run into five different guys that are better than him. So what's the point? Um so it's a very strange time right now where teams are having to come up with really unusual ways of saying, how do we get to be great? Like just getting a guy that's good is, is a waste of time. Like the Colts drafting Anthony Richardson, right? Because they're looking at this and saying, we're in the AFC. If we make the playoffs and we run up against Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow, Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, Trevor Lawrence, you know, one after the other. And now there's like guys like Kenny Pickett launching himself into that conversation maybe how does that work so the only way that can function is if we get anthony richardson and in like two years time yeah. because he's the greatest athlete the game has ever seen at that position he's at that level or he's capable of you know beating those guys single-handedly you can't win in late january february with just having good quarterbacks anymore it seems if you're going to go especially through the afc through herbert mahomes uh joe burrow i mean you, you really have to have someone that can elevate you to that level well, I think you probably can, but now you have to do it for like three games straight. Right. That's the problem. Fair point. Like, I think you could probably, like Kirk Cousins is a great example. Kirk Cousins on his day can beat anybody, but can he do it three games in a row, you know, in the in January when it's most important and you're going up against the best teams and the best opposition? That's probably unlikely. That's where I think the real change has become. Like, if you have a quarterback and you have a good team, you know, you can essentially, if that guy catches, I mean, Nick Foles, right? Like, Nick Foles, one of the most unbelievable things that's ever happened yeah. in the NFL history. The guy put together two of the, the greatest run. games yeah. that we've ever seen. And he did it in the championship game in the Super Bowl. That can happen. But the game before that, he, was, he wasn't even good. He was pretty bad. So that's your issue, is that now you need to be able to do it for at least three games to win a Super Bowl, probably more. I really love the scheme uh, point that you make out because I, I think when Dan Quinn, you know, looking at where he is now with Dallas and what they run is is far, you know, it, there's some elements that are same, but it is different than the Seattle cover three that he ran with the guys that he had. And I think when he went to Atlanta and he knew that Shanahan could break his, I mean, there are rules. He, there was an article and I really wish right. I could remember it. There are rules to the cover. Th there are rules to every defense, but there are rules to the cover three defense that if you're in it, you know what your, the main responsibility is. And there are just schemes that are built to break it. And people like Shanahan and McVay designed their whole <laughs> offense around breaking rules in each environment. And so I think that's where I love the, the 
the schemes arm race as you, I, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that. And I'm going to like, look at that over the course of this year and next year, because everyone's trying to break each other's schemes. And so who, who can cover up the breaking the most, I guess, is the, the big advantage. So I love that you pointed that out. That's really interesting. Yeah. And look, um, Jordan Rodriguez, who writes the athletic did a, an amazing sort of podcast series called play callers. Mm-hmm. I think that was looking at all these guys. And one of the things that really jumped out to me is that, that tendency they have to, to want to expose themselves to the other side of the ball. And I think that's new for this group yeah. relative to like, you know, the, say the West Coast offense when that became, uh, that became the thing, right? The Bill Walsh coaching tree. I don't remember, maybe they did, but I don't remember those guys cross-training as much on defense. Whereas Shanahan openly says that was like the making of him, right? It was like a year he spent in the defensive meeting rooms to sort of understand yep. how this was looked at from that side of the ball. And Bobby Slowick, who's now the offensive coordinator in Houston. Yeah, a Shanahan disciple and the guy that used to work at PFF. Yeah. When Bobby worked for us, he was a, he came from the defensive side of the ball. He was a linebackers um, guy in Washington and then, you know, worked at PFF and, and kind of helped us learn from the defensive mm-hmm. side of things and then went to Shanahan again when, when Shanahan got a job in San Francisco and Shanahan flipped him right when now you now you're going to go on the offensive side of the ball and that that defensive expertise you've uh, created is going to stand you in good stead and now here we are you know bobby's an offense coordinator in the nfl right yeah i think it was richard sherman now that i'm thinking about it was on a video describing his responsibility on a slant that had levine toilolo roll out and leak behind they did it twice yeah. against him and it was just him being like there's in that defense there's there's no, that is no one's responsibility that we just broke that specific game. Yes. Yeah. That specific yeah. game was, was maybe the greatest example of like Kyle Shanahan's yeah. offense 100% broke yeah. that Pete Carroll yeah. Seattle cover three defense. It knew the rules and it absolutely destroyed it. And honestly, that single game might be the greatest sort of pivot point in scheme in the last, you know, 15 years in the NFL. Like that game, it didn't kill the Seattle, you know, cover mm-hmm. three type of system, but that went from, that game was the pivot point from that defense being, you know, the preeminent right. scheme that everybody wanted to run to, I think, initially anything else. And then later, you know, the Fangio type of defense. That's right. OK, I'm not going to keep you any longer. We'll hit these uh, real quick lightning rounds because I could talk to you about that for seriously hours. Um, take this in any direction you'd like. If you can build a perfect NFL quarterback, right, that's the thing now. Hey, you can build a quarterback. Uh, walk me through your thoughts and who you're picking and what what part are you picking? It's become so tough because of what we just talked about, right? How many really, really good guys there were. Um, you don't have to go back too far where I would say you want, you're sort of describing Joe Montana, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, right? You want a cerebral, smart guy who doesn't make bad decisions, who's always sort of playing the right area of the percentages. Now it's like, now that guy's got to go toe-to-toe with Patrick Mahomes. You know, like you need a guy that can create something crazy because... He's going to, and if you can't do it as well, you're behind the eight ball, right? So uh, it, we're in a world where I think you need that. You need to be smart, make good decisions, always take the right spot, and you need to be able to do something crazy when the play breaks down and when you've got defensive linemen chasing you. You know, it, it's become 
I mean, it's we've, we've been heading in this direction for years, yeah. but the quarterback position is just only getting harder to play and the standard is only getting higher. Mm -hmm. It was impossible. Now it's whatever above impossible is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now it's just like a, it's a, like it's imaginative. It's <laughs> That's right. OK, um, this is not football related. Outside of driving on the other side of the road, what's the biggest difference between living in America and Ireland? Oh man, there, there's so many. It's just a very different landscape. Like the the cultural differences, I think, are very stark. You know, and you know, I didn't. I, I lived here a bit when I was a kid. I'd been over and back and forth, you know, to visit and do that kind of thing. And see, so I I knew what America was like, but when you're living here, you're sort of exposed a lot more to it. Plus, the way the world has gone the last, you know, five years or whatever, it's it's gone into a very weird place. So. You know, I, th I think America is this kind of hyper capitalist culture, this sort of world of personal freedom, you know, at the expense of everything else. Whereas Ireland is a lot more kind of quaint and parochial and <laughs> almost like a backwater at this point. I'm going to dovetail off of that really quickly because it surprised the hell out of me whenever you tweeted about your top three sports moments ever and a track and an athletics event, track and field event made the top three. I was like, whoa, hang on. Is that your, did you grow up with athletics? Do you have any fans? I was obviously a middle distance runner and that's my sort of passion. There's been quite a few rock stars to come out of Ireland uh, in the middle distance events. Not sure if that, that was your wheelhouse growing up. No, not really. I, I was a big fan of like a lot of different sports growing up. And then once, you know, you get a, you get a job, you get a career, like time focuses down on, on one thing. So there's all these kinds of things that I used to watch and just don't really get around to watching anymore. Athletics was a big one. I would always watch, you know, any athletics event that was going on. But that was that's true of a lot of different sports. Um, one I mean, my athletic career is fairly modest slash, you know, a joke relative to professional <laughs> athletes. But the one thing I had was speed, um, you know, and that was my kind of skill. I'm not, not a particularly skillful player in any actual coordinated fashion, but I was fast. Um, so I did like a season of athletics in school. And even when I was playing football or soccer or rugby, like that was the thing I had was I was faster than pretty much anybody else in the field. Hmm. So my last question is, if PFF does not exist, what is the line of work or what does your career look like? Where are you today without if PFF doesn't exist? <laughs> I have no earthly idea. Like it saved me from not having an idea. I, <laughs> I had done a history and politics degree. That was my undergraduate degree. And that was the kind of degree you do when you don't know what you want to do. <laughs> Because just, you know, it's four years, it's things you're pretty good at and then figure it out after that. So I had done that. I still hadn't figured it out. And then I did a year of uh, like a, a, a law um, diploma, figured I might go into uh, law, didn't want to do that at the end of the diploma. And then I did a year's master's in journalism. So I was like, I, you know, might go into writing or whatever. I guess that's the closest to what I've actually ended up being. So maybe I would have found some avenue in journalism, but like this, this basically saved me from several years of not having any real idea what I wanted to do. So you, like everyone else, we're just kind of in it, right? Yeah. Well, that's Sam Monson of uh, Lead Analyst on Pro Football Focus. 
You can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Sam. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today, man. Hope to have you on again. Enjoy the rest of the season, and we appreciate your time. He is Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus. If you like the content we are putting out, please subscribe with that plus sign at the top of your app, leave a review about the episode, and share it with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at S2Cognition and Instagram at S2.Cognition. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, please visit our website at S2Cognition.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening to the S2 Cognition podcast. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter, signing off for now. Talk to you on our next episode.